Well, good morning, my brothers and sisters. It's uh, my privilege to be with you this way once again. Uh, before we launch into today's message, uh, let's go back to the, to the Lord in prayer, please. Our great God, we come before you again and we acknowledge your greatness. You're the Almighty, and we come humbly. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that you, will, that you have been glorified thus far in the transactions this morning, and I pray that you will continue to be glorified, and I pray that you will bless us also in the process. Lord, as always, I, I pray that your message will go forth clearly. It's your word that is living and active and able to pierce to our very souls. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will uh, give us uh, hearts that are open to you this morning, and uh, Lord, I pray that you will change lives today, that you will make us all a little bit closer to you uh, when we leave than when we came. And uh, so we dedicate this time to you. We pray it in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So uh, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I appreciate the modern Bible study tools that we have available to us today. It, it would not have occurred to me. I, I, ordinarily, when I would have approached Psalm 112, I would have just taken it as an individual psalm. It's its own thing. Would not have realized that there's actually a very tight connection to Psalm 111, except for the, uh, my ESV study Bibles made a note about that. I said, oh, let me go check that out. But in fact, they're very similar. Uh, they both begin with a, a praise the Lord, an opening praise in the very beginning. And then they're, they're both acrostics. That is, each successive line of the psalm it starts with a successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And then you can see that there's actually complementary themes in the two psalms. One, psalm 111 uh, talks about God's character, um, the, the, the things that make God so great. And then Psalm 112 uh, uh, discusses how that godly character is reflected in his people. And so uh, this is a, it's a really, it's a tight coupling, uh, starting with God, as we should, and then reflecting, well, what's that mean for us as his people? So when we, we look at uh, Psalm 112, we, we realize that there's actually, you back up in the Psalm 111, and we, we get a... Uh, a transitional verse there, something where there's a, a theme that's common to the both of them. Um, verse 111, uh, uh, Psalm 111 uh, shows how we, when we fear God, uh, that goes well for us, and that's, transfer, uh, that's a transitional link into 112. But before we get into all that, let me actually read all of 112 for you. So you can get the whole thing in context, and then we'll start breaking it down verse by verse. So if you go to page five, if you want to use the, the, the Bible that's under a seat in front of you, you'll find the, uh, Psalm 112 on page 509. And if you want to follow along, that's great, or whatever uh, Bible you brought with you. Psalm 112 reads this way, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. 
He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Okay, so as we launch in, uh, most of Psalm 111, I'll, I'll warn you today, there's going to be a lot of homework because we, we just don't have time for it all. So most of Psalm 11 is going to be uh, uh, an assignment, homework for the student. Um, but uh, I do want to start with that first or that last verse in Psalm 111 because it's that transitional verse. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Uh, th this phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, you might recognize that as from a proverb, because it is Proverbs 9, verse 10, uh, if you want to make that connection there. So, so launching into 112 now. First verse, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And you can see that idea of fear of the Lord being the transitional piece there. Okay, so when, let's break this down a little bit. The opening part, praise the Lord, it almost seems a little disconnected from the rest of everything, but you know what? It's very consistent with the Psalter as a whole. As you remember my introduction I gave to the Psalms a month ago when we did Psalm 23, I said that the whole thing, the whole Psalm, book of Psalms in its entirety is primarily a book of praise. And in fact, that's what the Hebrews call it, book of praises. And, and so it's consistent with that. And, and in fact, if it's a, it, I told you the uh, Psalms are basically hymns. Uh, even to this day, uh, it, the Psalms are used as the Hebrew hymn book. Um, it's a good way to start any kind of a hymn, right, with a praise to our great God. Now, one thing you might not have realized, uh, we, we use the word hallelujah. You, you may not have known you're speaking Hebrew, right? That's, that's taken... Basically, that's what the phrase is. It translates into English as praise the Lord. The Hebrew is hallelujah, and we kind of co-opted that into our English for our purposes. But it's a great, it's a great, uh, it's a great Hebrew phrase. So moving on into verse 1. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. We, we've talked about this before. We need not be terrified of God, because remember, he loves us with a great, steadfast loving kindness. We talked about that in Psalm 23, verse 6. He is the good shepherd. He cares. He ha always has our best interest in mind. So we need not be fearful of him in that sense. Still, though, we need to give him the, uh, the proper reverence that he deserves. He is the awesome God. He is the Almighty, right? And what you're going to need to understand, and we're going to come back to this in verses 7 and 8 a little bit later, if we fear, fear God, we need fear nothing else, brothers and sisters. There's great confidence in that. So moving deeper into it, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. So what you need to understand, the fear of the Lord and delighting in his commandments is a package deal. You can't really have one without the other. Right? The one who truly reveres Yahweh, the one that we shouted his name today, right? Thanks to the band. Great, great stuff today, again, as always. Uh, if we revere Yahweh, 
the way we ought, then we are going to be intensely inclined toward his, what he says. We want to know what he says we, with an inclination toward obeying that, right? Um, so, so it's a package deal. It's a point of reflection, really, for you. If, if you're not really interested in his commandments, are you really truly revering them the way you ought to? Right, think about that in the, in the week going forward. Uh, Matthew Henry says this about the person that we're talking about in Psalm 1, the godly person. He says, They are such as stand in awe of God and have a constant reverence for his majesty and deference to his will. I just like the way he says that. Excellent uh, uh, wording there. And then he goes on to say, He is in his element when he is in the service of God, when he's following the commandments, right? Personalize it. You are in your element as a child of God when you are in the service of God. Okay. Looking at Psalm 112, verse 2. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. So, understand that descendants tend to be influenced by their ancestors. This is not news, I don't think, right? You have influence on those who follow after you. You have been influenced by those who preceded you. Um, the, the moral authority in the godly person tends to produce offspring that are influential in their own way. Okay, that's just normal. That's the natural progression of things. Uh, in this verse, the word generation can mean an age, or posterity, so the godly one influences their entire age in some degree and then has a ripple, an ongoing influence into the posterity. You too are having that kind of influence, can have that kind of influence, okay? Be aware of that. We tend to underestimate, in fact, the degree of influence that we have. So keep that in mind, keep that in mind. And you thought I wasn't going to mention Father's Day because I was already into it, right? But, but what a perfect uh, play into Father's Day. This idea that a man's godliness can have a, such a positive influence on his offspring. Now look, guys, I know it's, uh, it's difficult. It's a tough job. It's always been a tough job. It's particularly tough and even sometimes really downright confusing. Uh, we're surrounded by an increasingly godless pagan culture, not making it any easier, okay? Uh, but hang in there. Uh, I'm encouraging you guys. You're having a great influence. If you will love on your children in dependence upon God, good things will eventually come out of that, okay? So hang in there. Hang in there, guys. Okay, moving on to verse 3. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Now, wealth and riches, this is not a guarantee, okay? That's a general principle. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But I've warned you against the prosperity gospel that would kind of try to make this a guarantee. They would seize on this phrase and say, well, see, there you go. I'm going to be healthy and wealthy and and whatever. Um, But remember, the first century church in Jerusalem was destitute, okay? So it wasn't kind of working out that way in the way we would normally think of it. In fact, you can see, you can see that because Paul was soliciting 
offerings from the Gentile churches to help the poor people in Jerusalem out. You can find that in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Homework assignment. Also in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, first several verses, uh, you can see where Paul's collecting for the saints. Uh, so I came across this, uh, an article in uh, the latest edition of Israel, My Glory, called Looking for Faith in All the Wrong Faces, written by Linda Kraft, and she said this, if the prosperity gospel were true, we would be masters of our own destiny, and faith would be reduced to a magic wand used for nothing more than to make our dreams come true. It turns the relationship between God and man into an equal exchange, a business deal, or a political quid pro quo. I've got faith, God, so give me what I want. But that's not really the idea here. This is a general principle. The idea is that God knows how life works best. He invented it, all right? So if we align ourselves with his revealed word that he's provided in his scriptures, things will tend to go better for us, all right? That's just logical. Okay, and his righteousness endures forever. This is an interesting phrase that is also in Psalm 111. If you do your homework, you'll find it in verse 3. It's, it's, but the exact same words are used of God, and now here in 112, of the godly. Again, showing that parallel between the two. And the essence of it is, is that the godly are, as Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, we are partakers of the divine nature. This is all in accordance with God's redemption plan, right? We all bear his image to some degree, uh, greatly tarnished um, still, but as we are redeemed and brought into the fold and being conformed to the likeness of Christ, we are increasingly partakers of the divine nature. Okay, moving on to verse 4. Light dawns into darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. So the upright tend to generate light. We shine forth the light of God in our world when we are gracious and merciful and righteous. We're reflecting the Creator. Again, the same kinds of words are used of God in Psalm 111, verse 4. Another way to look at it is that God provides light for us when we're in our deep darkness. We talked about this deep darkness, the deep valley, the valley of the shadow of death, even in Psalm 23, verse 4. The point is that God provides light for us when we're in our dark places. Matthew Henry, again, says this, they shall have their share in the common calamities of human life, but when they sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light to them, Micah 7, 8. There is light enough from within. Then he goes on to note that during the Egyptian darkness, the Israelites had light in their dwellings. So there was a, it was the ninth plague. You can read about it in Exodus, Exodus 10, more homework. But just quickly, there was a deep darkness. I mean, really dark. Like you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. So much that the Egyptians just... They just stayed in their beds. They just hunkered down. But the Israelites, they had light. So God is there to provide light. Now we come to Psalm uh, 112, verse 5. And I'm showing multiple 
uh, versions or translations at the same time on this slide because uh, I think this is one of the more difficult ones to translate, apparently. And the reason I say that is because if you look at the wording, there are some slightly different types of ideas that are coming through. The, the first one up top is the ESV that we, we read from. And that's where most of my references are from, unless I've noted otherwise. But the, in the top verse, looking at just the first phrase, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends. But if you look at the King James, it says, the, a good man shows favor and lendeth. So is it that it's good for the man to deal generously and lend, or is it the good man that does those things? Well, the first one is kind of consistent with uh, some other threads in this psalm where if we do things the way God does them, it's good for us, right? On the other hand, the overall theme of the whole psalm is that if we're godly, we will do the same kind of good things that God does. So in either case, either way, I think uh, both are consistent with the scriptures, with the internally consistent in this psalm, and maybe in fact a little both is intended. I don't actually know for sure. Um, the, in, the part, in part B, the second half, uh, who conducts his fares with justice. Um, and then there's some different flavors of that, too. Not sure exactly which is the best rendering and all that, but I think the thing that's clear in this is that there should be, we should be prudent in our dealings. We should be just. A biblical justice should pervade what we're doing in our dealings with others. Um, remember in our study of James, uh, in chapter 2, there was this idea, no partiality, right? No partiality. The law of love, love your neighbor as yourself. If you're doing those things, you will be consistent with, pick your rendering, pick your favorite phrasing here. It's consistent with, with all of that. Okay, so just focusing on the ESV for now, um, this idea of doing well and conducting our affairs with justice uh, I want to compare to Proverbs verse 11, uh, verse, uh, chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Okay. Um, another, another thought from Proverbs 19, 17 Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. That's sort of a staggering concept, that in some way, when we are generous to the needy, God himself makes him, himself our debtor. He takes it personally as though he, somehow he owes us something. Now, I've told you before from this very platform that God owes us nothing, right? And in fact, that's, that is the, 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 tr the truth. But God decides to owe us something when we are generous toward need. <laughs> that's an amazing concept to me. But then isn't that just the same as what Jesus told us in Matthew 25, verse 40? He said, this is at the end of a parable where he was talking about, you know, when, when I was sick and in prison and, and poor and, you know, and, and the people say, wait, when did we do all that to you? And he says this, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. 
right? Same idea. When we are, when we are reaching out and helping and ministering to other people, Jesus takes it as though we were ministering personally to him. What a great, great, great concept. Okay. Verse 6. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. The promise of victory in Jesus and his presence makes his saints steadfast. That's what makes us firm. Um, I recommend 1 Corinthians 15 to you. Again, more homework. Uh, it starts out, the first few verses actually give the gospel, essentially in a nutshell. It works through a whole discussion of resurrection. It, it, the crescendo is where Paul says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ has conquered the grave. And then he goes on to say in verse 58, um, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Uh, that's the New American Standard Version. So our, our steadfastness traces back to Christ's victory and his presence with us. Uh, Psalm 16, verse 8 says it this way, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Now, this bit about being remembered forever, um, okay, the reality of it is that in this world, all the righteous are not remembered forever. Uh, in fact, there's plenty that are hardly even recognized at all, let alone much remembered. Uh, your, your godly character may gain you some reputation in the world that might, might even be lasting. But here's the thing. God surely doesn't forget, right? He's the one. There are many who are the least now that will be great. There are many who are last who will be first, right? Okay, here's, a different, here's maybe a different way to think of it, too. Uh, the literal version, which is a much more word-for-word -word, uh, straight translation, says the righteous shall be for a memorial forever. Hmm. Proverbs 10, in this context, think of Proverbs 10, verse 7, the memory of the righteous is a blessing. Maybe that's part of the idea here in, in uh, verse 6 of Psalm 112. And may your memory be a blessing to others, right? Isn't that a sweet thought? Okay, pressing on. Uh, verse 7. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Uh, the he here is the righteous one from verse 6. And uh, this idea of the heart being firm, if you look at your King James Version, it, it says fixed there. Kind of like fixed. Heart is fixed. And note, note the, the poise, the, the confidence of the godly person. Um, Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Um, C.S. Lewis, in 1948, wrote a, an essay called On Living in an Atomic Age. 
Now you remember, this is a few short years after the first atomic bombs were ever used, and thankfully the last to, to date. But the people in that time were kind of terrified by that. I mean, if you see what was, what was done in Hiroshima or Nagasaki by a single bomb, and it, it was devastating, and those are, those are small compared to the things that we have now, all right? But the people were terrified, and so he wrote this essay saying, look, people, yeah, uh, there has always been stuff that could take us out in an instant. Uh, there were centuries of plague that devastated uh, Europe, right? The Black Plague taking out large numbers of their population. Um, there's always been things that could take any of us out in a heartbeat. The atom bomb just represents one that can take lots of us out in a heartbeat, right? And his point was, don't be living in fear of that. Be about God's business. Live your life well. Keep doing the things that you ought to be doing. And he, uh, the, I, I would have read you the whole thing, for the, but for the sake of time, I'm just summarizing it. His last line was this. I think it's great. He said, let the bomb find you doing well. <laughs> right? What a great way to live. If you get wiped out in an instant, may that instant be in the midst of you doing something well in the service to God. And remember, our enemy, the enemy, can't really win in any, in any real lasting sense. We're going to look at this more in verse 10. Uh, I read a story of a, uh, of a pastor who was ministering in Eastern Europe during the Soviet era. Not a very comfortable time or place to be ministering, right? And he was taken into custody by the police, as is normal for pastors in Eastern Europe in that time. And he told them, he said, if you kill me, I'll be even more powerful as a martyr. We can't, we can't lose. They can't win, right? Okay, and I'll go even a little step further and say, not only does the godly not fear bad news, the godly might actually even see opportunity there. Um, kind of like how the shrewd investor sees a falling stock market as stocks on sale. Hey, good companies, stocks selling cheap, let's get some, right? Um, anybody ever seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge? Oh yeah, good, good. If you haven't, you need to. Uh, it is an impactful movie. It is the story of a, of a guy named Desmond Doss. Uh, he was a, uh, of the Seventh-day Adventist um, uh, tradition, which we, I think we consider generally in the, in the realm of Christendom, but he was a conscientious objector in World War II. He is the only conscientious objector to have won the Congressional Medal of Honor because of his exploits during World War II. In particular, on Okinawa, there was this place called Hacksaw Ridge, just a terrible, gruesome, bloody battle. Uh, I will warn you, if you watch the movie, it's, it's a war movie. It's pretty graphic. You probably don't want to watch it with your kids, all right, um, because it's, it's very realistic. But there's, I, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you the whole story because I want you to watch it because it is gripping. But there's one point 
in, that, in the midst of one of these battles and the Japanese are doing a counteroffensive and the guys are being driven, the Americans are being driven back off the, off the ridge and he was starting to make friends in the foxhole with one of these guys and the guy dies right there in his arms as he's trying to get him back down over the ridge. And he, he says, God, what do you want from me? And then kind of a little determined smile comes across his face and as everybody sorry it's, it still kind of grips me um, as everybody else is running off the ridge he goes back to try and save his comrades who have fallen and it's enemy occupied territory now um, it's intense it's really intense but do you see how He's just an ordinary guy living in an ordinary town in America. But these extraordinary circumstances gave him an opportunity to do something truly extraordinary. Often that's coming with bad news, those opportunities. Okay. Okay. But the thing that makes us able to endure those things, the thing that makes our heart firm or fixed, is our trust in the Lord. If you're trusting in anything else, it's not worthy of your trust. The Lord alone is worthy of your trust. Um, 2 Timothy 1 verse 12 says it this way in the literal version, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to guard my deposit until that day. Okay. Okay. Psalm 8. My heart is steady. Oh, his heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Um, let's start out looking at the first part of that. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. Again, this courage, this firm heart... This is an echoing of what we just read in verse 7, right? And then recall what I tell you all the way back in verse 1. If we fear God, we need fear nothing else. His heart is steady. He's trusting in God. He has no need to be afraid. Uh, again, br uh, bringing in the literal version uh, to give a little different flavor, because I want to look at the second phrase, until he looks in triumph on his adversaries, a little harder to understand exactly where that fits and how that works. In the literal version, it says, His heart is upheld. He shall not be afraid, though he looks on his foes. Now, actually, the italics in that are words that are inserted to make it readable, but it's, those words aren't actually there. It would say, literally, word for word, His heart upheld. He shall not be afraid. He looks on his foes. So, what is this looks on his foes bit? Uh, I found that that same phrase shows up in two other psalms. Uh, in Psalm 54.7 and 59.10, you might want to jot that down and go research that for yourself as homework. But if you go there, you will find that those, both of those psalms show a great confidence in God's ability to bring victory. So maybe in that same sense, the translators were rendering it here the same way until he looks in triumph on his adversaries because God has brought triumph. God has brought victory. Okay. In any case, the main thing is that his heart is upheld literally by God. 
such that he need not fear his adversaries. They can't, what did we say in the previous verse? They can't have any lasting, meaningful, long-term victory. Okay, Psalm 112, verse 9. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Okay, a lot, a lot there. The idea of generosity, again, this is kind of echoing what we talked about already in verse 5, and I do want to make an important point here. I, I think we have gotten used to the idea that the government provides safety nets and all this type of thing to help out the poor, but it's not really the government's job. If you want to know the government's job, you can find that in Romans chapter 13. The primary job of government is to restrain evil. When it comes to caring for the poor, guess what, people? That's our job. That is our job. I'll go a little further to say that if the government feels like it's their job, maybe it's because we're not doing our job well enough. Just throwing it out there, not making any guilt trips, but just saying... This is what we should be doing. And remember, if we're doing this, it goes well for us anyway because God takes it personally, right? He, he decides he now owes us when we are doing this job well. We are being blessed by that. Okay. Um, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That phrase, in its entirely, exactly like that, is quoted by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9. You may recall that in, those, in that passage, he's talking about the general principles of giving, in particular in how to support that poor church in Jerusalem that we were talking about earlier, but he's talking about other principles as well, like the principle of sowing and reaping. Uh, we're not going to get into all of that right now today, but it's an important principle in understanding how all that works. As you sow, so shall you reap. Okay? And then again, this, this idea of an enduring righteousness of the godly. Uh, we've, we saw that first in verse 3. And then this bit of the horn. What is the horn about? Uh, according to Ryrie, the horn is a symbol of strength. So all of these other things that are going on, distributing freely, giving to the poor, righteousness endures forever, is all part of being exalted in honor. These are honorable things. And, and I'd even mention that uh, he, even, even the godless philanthropist gets honor, right? People look well on those who are generous toward others. Whether they do it out of love for God or out of some kind of selfish interest, um, a lot of the industrialists that came, became billionaires on the backs of other people in their latter years turned around and, and you know, started giving their money away and doing philanthropic, uh, philanthropic things with it. I don't know if it, it was to try and kind of justify themselves now or what their motive was there, but they have been greatly esteemed because of that, using their wealth to help others in the end. Okay, coming down the home stretch, verse 10. Here the psalmist takes uh, like a, a really hard turn and starts talking and moves on from the godly person to the wicked 
person, the godless person. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Okay, so the wicked, it drives them nuts to see the godly people, the righteous people prospering, right? They don't like righteousness to begin with. They certainly don't like righteous people prospering. Um, here, wicked, you can think of as being morally wrong, actively bad, ungodly, and therefore condemned. And this idea of anger, angry, vexed, grieved even, indignant, or even enraged. Okay. Looking at this idea of gnashing teeth and, and he melts away. Melts away can include like wasting away, falling apart. And, and really the destiny of the wicked is, is much gnashing of teeth. Uh, Matt, uh, in Matthew 25, verse 30, Jesus said this at the end again of another parable. He said, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. People, that has got to be one of the saddest and most terrifying verses in all of Scripture. Uh, the desire of the wicked will perish. Desire is a longing, even a lusting. Um, perish is losing oneself, being undone, having no way to flee the coming destruction. And the hopes and dreams of the wicked expire with this life. When the wicked dies, Proverbs 11 says, his hope will perish and the expectation of wealth perishes too. It has been said that for the godless, this life is as good as it gets. For the godly, this life is as bad as it gets. Ponder that a little bit, right? Okay, so as we're coming to a close, uh, bringing this in for a landing, I, I just want to leave you with, with the last few thoughts as, a, as kind of a summary statement. Um, it's entirely in your best interest to be entirely godly. All right? It may not always that way at the moment. There will be paradoxical elements in all of this. Um, and in fact, Jesus told us, uh, you will experience tribulation, right? But even in the midst of tribulation, being godly is the best path for us, okay? So fear God, and then fear nothing else. Fear God, fear nothing else, right? Help the poor, when opportunity presents, and I don't know what that means for you or what that looks like, I'm not gonna try and tell you that, but as a principle, be generous toward those who are needy. And remember that the lot of the wicked is eternal misery. However good it seems to be going for them in this life, they're headed for a really bad place. So if you can, turn them, right? We're, we are here as God's representatives with the message of reconciliation. We are the ones carrying the gospel. Uh, so to the extent that it depends on us, let us bring as many of the wicked into the fold as possible and bring them into redemption as well. All right.
Okay, uh, let's close in prayer as the, uh, as the prayer uh, team comes forward. Um, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day once again. We thank you for this Father's Day. We thank you for this Sunday. We thank you for Resurrection Day, that in Jesus we have hope, that as we trust in you, we can be steadfast and immovable. Uh, Lord, we pray that you will bless us and as we go from here today. And uh, we pray you will be glorified even further as we go out into our world and carry your name to a, a lost, hurting, dark, desperate world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed, and, uh, and happy Juneteenth tomorrow. Uh, again, celebrating that milestone in our country's uh, uh, long walk toward uh, liberty and justice for all.